Thank you guys for tuning in to the On It podcast. This week's guest is Dr. Andy Galpin. Dr. Andy Galpin is a buddy of mine I met, I met at XPT in Malibu with Laird Hamilton, Gabby Reese, and Brian McKenzie. He's a phenomenal guy, knows a ton of stuff on muscle, as that's what he does. He's a researcher and a scientist. He's a professor at Cal State Fullerton, and he just released his new book, Unplugged, co-authored by Brian McKenzie and Phil White. There's a wealth of knowledge in there. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast as much as I did. Thank you very much for joining us. We got our man, Dr. Andy Gulpin, here with us today. Um, you know, we have a shorter format show, so I'm going to try to grind through as much awesome bullet points for people and takeaways as possible uh, to dive deeper. And I mentioned this too when I had Rob Wolf on. You had an excellent, excellent podcast with Joe Rogan. He's got the three hour show. He can dive a little deeper there. Yeah. It makes more sense if you want full background and all that. But what's your background? What do you do for a living? So I am the director for the Center for Sport Performance at Cal State Fullerton, and I'm the founder and director of what's called the Biochemistry and Molecular Exercise Physiology Lab, and that's the fancy way to say I'm, I'm a scientist, uh, I'm a teacher, and, and I conduct and disseminate research in the areas of human performance, so specifically muscle, but that's what I do. Hell yeah. Yeah. So you tell us about the background, though, like growing up before you got into that, because you, you, uh, you have some... Some training, lifting weights a little bit. Yeah, right yeah. There. a little yeah. bit. I grew up in a really small country town in southwest Washington called Rochester, Washington. So shout out to all 11 of you that are still in Rochester. Um, but, you know, I played, I'm a country kid, so I played everything sport-wise growing up. And I got into lifting weights probably 13, 14. I thought I was, I thought I was badass getting in at 15. Ah, uh, dude, you're <laughs> so behind the game. Yeah. Might have been there. I was fortunate. I had a culture... Um, of lifting weights uh, my high school football coach the program my dad was also very into physical fitness but honestly it extends beyond that what it really was was that whole community my family the coaching staff just the people in that area the country people there it just was not an excuse to lose or be behind because you didn't want to work hard or prepare mm. and i think that's what really resonated with me it wasn't about lifting weights it was just some it was about the fact that you did everything to prepare and there isn't if you can't pay the rent if you lose it doesn't matter sport wise if something doesn't come through that's your fault you didn't work hard enough that's what i think was like oh here's the lesson here lifting weights happened to be the medium sport was the outlet for me i i was i mean like you not as good as you but I was very good at sport early, and so I stuck in that medium. But the real lesson there was, like, if you work for something here, there's reward. Yeah, I think uh, that's really what Coach House gave me at yeah. ASU. Yeah, it was, I mean, he was my strength coach, and I got a lot stronger with him. Like, everything he taught me worked. But the thing that he taught me that stuck with me through my MMA career and beyond was you can push yourself further than you yeah. think you can. Yeah. And I'm going to help you do that. Yeah. And so he changed my belief in what was possible. Yeah. And that fucking transcended all sport. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, for me, it was also, uh, you have a diligence. You, it is your responsibility to prepare. Whether that's now for science, whether that's for the classroom, whether that's for a talk at a lecture, I, I probably spend more time preparing for the lectures and the talks at conferences that I give you know, digits-wise, more than my colleagues. Because I still have that, that responsibility of, of saying, like, if you're underprepared and you give a 90% effort, you owe that audience 10%. That's not acceptable. You need to work extra hard to make sure that you put on a, a fantastic performance because these people may be scraping the bottom of the barrel to get that 300 bucks to see you. 
and then you show up and you give a 90% effort, like that is all the difference. And that is huge value to that person. That is their time they can't get back. And, and you may have put them out of serious financial gain to, to be there. And that's what you showed up for them. It's just unacceptable. Uh, so all those lessons carried me through. I, I played college football, again, not a division one level. <laughs> <laughs> I set the bench yeah, at man. Division One level, so I don't know <laughs> that I could say how much I played. Fair enough. Uh, did you defensive lineman? What did you play? Yeah, yeah, I just D tackled the end. Yeah. Oh yeah, D end makes sense. Yeah, yeah. neither uh, makes sense. I was too slow for D end and, and too small for D tackle. Ah, uh, yep, okay. But it was it was fun. Yeah. Less less responsibility inside. Yeah. Um, when I graduated college uh, from my undergrad, I, you know, when I went to graduate school. Uh, I started competing in Olympic weightlifting. I really enjoyed that uh, when I sort of had my fill at that. Uh, I started competing a little bit in combat sports, jiu-jitsu, and, and things like that, and training really hard. So uh, I've done a decent amount of sport, and, and I still really enjoy working with combat sport athletes. I've done the NFL thing. I've done the Major League Baseball thing. But really, that's that's the sport I gravitate to for you know the stuff we were talking about yesterday it's not the finances are definitely far worse <laughs> i mean you're not getting you're not getting rich training guys that are making 10 and 10 yeah no no turns out 10%, that's weird 10 of 500 bucks is not very much money yeah that doesn't stretch too far no so uh you know that's i think that's kind of put it all together and i always get asked this question next which is how did you get into science and the response is the same i was a pretty good athlete but not good enough like i I was good enough to be incentivized to say, like, if you do work hard, all of a sudden now you, you're all conference as opposed to just starting and being really good. Or now you get to go to play college football. But I wasn't so good to where, eh, it doesn't matter how I train. Eh, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm going to be an All-American anyways. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was the perfect level of incentive to early on just learn how do you optimize training. I don't have time. One missed workout was could be the difference, right? Or at least that was the perception. So I just spent a tremendous amount of time as a kid reading fitness magazine articles and Arnold's encyclopedia, just oh, yeah. like anything I could get Mind my hands encyclopedia on. encyclopedia of bodybuilding. And so I knew when I went to school and I was on my recruiting visits, it was like, what do you want to do? And I remember saying, like, I just want to learn about muscle and performance. And everyone was like, oh, you want to be an athletic trainer? I'm like, I'm not fucking taping ankles for a living. <laughs> that <laughs> is wanna, not what I'm interested in doing. You want to massage feet and put no. spats on? I'm much loved to all you athletic trainers out there. I love you all. Uh, <laughs> your job is you're better people than I am. But I was like, no one really, there wasn't a field really back then. Uh, so I had to suffer through um, a bunch of stuff that I wasn't super interested in health-wise to really get myself in a position to study muscle and performance the way that I do now. So that's kind of how I got here. That's badass. So yeah. talk a bit about what you do in the lab because you're doing some very fascinating stuff that's looking at things in detail that not a lot of other people can say they do. Actually, the what we do now is, is directly people, I guess they have this false assumption of, of man, you landed a really great job. No, I built it. I, I engineered this whole career from scratch. I started off with my degrees, and when I finished my undergraduate degree, which is in exercise science, you know, the standard thing, nothing miraculous there. And I went to work for Mark Verstegen, you know, down in Athletes Performance, and I spent time during those, and I realized I don't want to be a full-time strength conditioning coach for just a variety of reasons, and I definitely don't want to work with professional athletes full-time. <laughs> I'm sure that's fantastic that's for some people. <laughs> Did not work well for me and my personality. Uh, didn't land right. So I tried to look at the field, and I'm like, well, a lot of people know a lot more house. Like, all these guys know a lot more about strength conditioning, and I could work 40 years 
and I'm probably not going to know as much as they are, and I don't have all the things that they have to have for success. So I'm gonna if I play that game, I'm going to lose. And I looked at the science aspect of it, and people had MDs and PhDs and teams, and they were studying disease and cancer. And I thought I, I don't actually have the intelligence uh, by those metrics to get through that system either. And if I have to write and compete with NIH grants and all these things, I'm I'm going to lose that game too. I want to play a game that no one else is playing. Like that's my position. And so I looked at the two fields and I thought, well, no one's actually doing performance research and no one's doing muscle physiology at this single cell, molecular, cellular level and looking at it, translating it back to performance. And so I went and got my master's and my PhD in human bioenergetics and spent four years studying muscle physiology of old people and aging and things like that. Not because I cared per se about those topics, because I knew I had that sport performance and strength conditioning background, athletic background. And if I understood the actual mechanics, the chemistry which I was terrified to take, by the way. Like, I was terrified. I have a PhD in bioenergetics, and I had not taken a chemistry class until I was in my PhD. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I was so terrified to take biochemistry. And I got lucky and skated through all of it, right? But I was like, because I don't have the intelligence for that, but I, I knew I could outwork it, and I could just outpassion it. So I did that, and then when I walked out, I had this unique niche, which was, oh my gosh, nobody does performance at the cellular and molecular level like you do. Well, yeah, because that's, that's what I built. Like, I went after that. So when I went out and marketed my job, I came in with this plan. And I walked into every interview and said, this is my plan. This is my vision. This is where I want to go, which is not how university jobs work, by the way. Like, it's, it's usually the opposite. We have this very specific direction we want to go. Can, can you fill it? Yes or no? We picked the candidate who fills it. And I did a little bit of the opposite. I said, like, this is what I want to do. This is why. And I told them, explained to them why this was different and how this is going to be unique. And unfortunate, Cal State Fullerton was like, this is, this is amazing. This is what we want. And, and, and like I get a lot of, of, of crap from my colleagues and stuff because of doing things like this. Right? Which is like, how do you make time for all this, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, again, I built this, this job. Like, I built it for this, and I told them these things like this. So I'm going to build social media outreach. I'm going to do all this stuff, and I'm going to promote all these things. And they're like, oh, my gosh. I'm not going to try to play the NIH game. I'm going to lose. Do you want me to play a game that you and I both am going to lose? No. Let me try a new game that no one else has tried. And I've just been fortunate to have tremendous success from that. So our lab, to finally, I guess, answer your question, <laughs> um, we were one of the few places in the country in the world really that can do muscle biopsies. I just actually had Mark Bell and Chris Bell. A couple days ago, they're out. I, I biopsied Mark. Oh, no shit. Yeah, which is going to be really... I biopsied Chris, yeah, You had an excellent podcast, a two-part podcast on Mark Bell's PowerCast. And yeah, that's yeah. a huge recommendation. I, lo I love... And I like all the the dick jokes and the shenanigans yeah. that, that Mark cannot stay away from. So it is uh, excellent entertainment. If you're into that sort of thing, I guess. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. So they I came out. To, what did you see? What I tried to notice? talk like a scientist, but like... <laughs> they, they weren't having that. Yeah, like, yeah, now like, let's get some fucking locker room talk going. Man, I'm, I'm a 34-year-old I'm a, I'm a dude too that played college football, man. That side of me is still right there. Yeah. Uh, so we haven't done any analysis on Mark's tissue. Oh, yet. okay, okay. But that's the type of stuff we do, and then we look at it for everything like fiber type and muscle size, myonuclei. Uh, the myonuclei are the part of the cell that controls whether it grows, shrinks, dies, repairs, duplicates, splits, things like that. But the twist is, we look at those things again in relation to training. So why is it these athletes have more of this or less? Uh, these two different training styles. What's the actual physiological response at the cellular muscle level? Uh, to these different things. And we try to explain the mechanisms behind that and try to find, you know, uh, is this signaling protein activated more or less or why? What's happening? 
Uh, again, not in response to pharmaceutical treatment or cancer treatment, but in response to different t- two different types of strength training protocols, for example. Uh, so that's really where what we spend most of our time so, doing. And that could be something as simple as like bodybuilder sets and reps, four by ten versus traditional five by five or you yeah, know, eight it, by two. You know, powerlifting. Exactly. Like that. A lot of people have looked at those practical outcomes, and me as a coach uh, and as a practitioner, I could tell you the difference between doing four sets of ten or ten sets of four. Right? You'd have a functional difference. You'd have a performance difference, and that's actually well-established, both research-wise, practitioner-wise. But what's not established is, okay, well, what's the actual physiological difference? Or is there? Is it not muscular? Is it central nervous system like everyone always gives credit to? turns out it's not, right? But we're never going to know that unless we start actually taking muscle samples, and we can use that science, that deep level of physiological science, to actually support what's happening at the practical and explaining or understanding those adaptations. And that's really what we spend the bulk of our time doing. That's awesome. Yeah. So obviously you work with fighters cause it's something you're passionate yeah. about. You've, uh, you've, you've taken a dive in there and then we had a long conversation about the, the perils of fighting. So <laughs> I, won't, I won't bore people with that, sure. but, um, what are some of the things that you've found that have helped from an athletic standpoint? Because fighting is one of the most unique unique things on earth from a mental standpoint, a physical standpoint, an emotional, well, all of it. physiologically. But fact, physiological as well, right? You have a uh, high-end power output needing to be explosive. You still have a huge endurance component. Yeah. You have to be able to recharge in between rounds, breath work and things like that, which I want to dive into you with. We'll definitely get into that. But what are some of the, the huge takeaways that you And that doesn't seen? even count the weight cut? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the yeah. Rehydrate. Dehydration, rehydration, uh, all that. I get, asked, I, I get asked this question all the time about signs and symptoms over training. Like for an MMA fighter, day one of camp, here's mm-hmm. the signs and symptoms. Fatigue, irritability, not wanting to train, soreness, can't recover, hard time sleeping. Like those are all the signs and symptoms of being calorically restricted yeah. too. Low appetite. Like yep. you're going to do all these things during this massive weight cut. So it's like, you got to throw all that out the window. That's not going to help you. Um, but one of the things I've, I, I guess the initial thing I found when I first got into this sport is just a simple lack of planning uh, and not understanding. And I think this actually really extends to people, the general public, more so than athletes, because the vast majority of people work out, and that's great. But if you're trying to just work out for the rest of your life, you probably need to start building in cycles of, okay, for this four weeks or this six weeks or eight weeks or six months, whatever, th- the time domain doesn't matter. You need to have at least a rough idea of a plan, which is I'm going to work on adding muscle this six weeks, or I'm going to add on really in improving my cardiovascular endurance. I'm going to work on improving this, something like that. And then you need to change those things. But you can't change that stuff. Changing without a plan is called randomization. We want variation, but variation is planned, right? Or at least, I mean, I'm not saying like every rep or set or even close, but just a rough outcome goal. This is what I'm looking to do, get faster, improve this, something like that. And with the MMA fighters, it was a real struggle with them because they, they all work. I've still not met a high, well, that's a lie. Uh, I've not met many high-level MMA fighters who don't work extremely hard. So what's the difference? Then? Well, some of them have a plan with what they're doing, and most of them don't. It's just like, I'm going to show up to the gym and outwork. Well, that's great. When you're 22 and you've got an eight-week camp, that might work. But when you're 32, that's not going to work anymore. And you're going to be mm-hmm. broken. You're going to be continuing pulling out of fights, and you're going to be a train wreck when you're 33 or whatever the number is. So having a very specific plan about not only ranging intensity, but movements or what's the outcome goal today was, was the number one prescription I gave them. And I think it, again, extends very well to the general public as, as well. Very cool. So when a fighter is in, and this is just the, 
the former fighter in me wanting to pick your brain on this because mm -hmm. I, I see, I, I listen to what you're saying and I'm like, yep, I fucked that up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like there's, there was some, yeah. clearly some, some mistakes made in hindsight, but um, uh, how would that shift for a power athlete getting ready for competition or who still has an endurance component? You know, like you could obviously yeah. training outside of camp varies wildly from training inside of camp. What then becomes the focus? Yeah, and, so and specific to... The science that you've seen like through muscle biopsies like yeah hey, this is where we get the most bang for our buck so, so i think that there well there's not one answer but there are some tenants that can be really really helpful which is it depends on what you look like coming into camp so let's just say you had six weeks to prepare okay fine well what you do during that six weeks what you emphasize is actually a product of what happened the previous six weeks or six months and you make your decision based on that and i'll give you a couple of examples so it's a little more tangible if you look at my friend Joel Jameson, all right, so he's up, he's Demetrius Johnson's strength conditioning coach. He really, really encourages during fight camp, they really don't do much strength and conditioning. It's really about fight specific, right? So mm -hmm. you, you're training on the mat. But that's because he develops aerobic capacity. He develops strength. He develops power outside of camp. But that's because he has an athlete like DJ who is a real professional and trains like a professional. You know, bust his ass year around. He knows how to listen to his body. Exactly. He does everything correctly. He listens to his coaches too. Mm -hmm. And Joel has a plan for him. And so he'll develop maximal strength or whatever he needs to add muscle mass or cut fat, whatever he's needing. That way when he gets into camp, he can just get ready for the fight. A lot of people have a problem trying to get their body ready, trying to get in shape, trying to lose weight. Oh, and also try to get better at skill. Well, you can't do both. It's very, very, very difficult. You could take the exact opposite approach which is, okay, I'll, I'll get better as a fighter for the whole six months, and then the last six weeks, I'll actually just improve my strength, speed. Okay, fine. That, that, I know some coaches that do that thing too. I don't think it matters. The fact that they both have a very specific plan. The difference between development and optimization. Are you developing? Well, you can't try to develop during these condensed times. You need to de be developing the other six months of the year, which is what a football, which is what house would do, mm -hmm. right? We have an off-season, a piece. This is standard. Any strength conditioning coach out there is going, oh, yeah, okay, that's an off-season mesocycle, then an in-season mesocycle. Duh. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, but Let just, me just keep you together crosses. in yeah. football season. Yes. You're not going to get hurt. That's it, my fucking main goal. Exactly. I'm not going to add 100 pounds to your squat. Right. And so are we trying to, to double your squat strength four weeks out from a fight? Well, then we're probably off the mark. If that, We should have worked on that later. Right. If you are excellent at Muay Thai and you're fighting a guy who's a phenomenal jiu-jitsu player and you're trying to learn jiu-jitsu in the four weeks before the fight, good, I mean, good luck. Yeah. Like, good luck. <laughs> like, you need to be drilling a few very specific combinations or strategies or transitions. He likes to hear his two dominant positions or her two dominants. We want to go here, 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 here. You have two or three options. Let's get rock solid at those and extremely fast. Now you actually have a chance. Then we'll fix your jiu-jitsu game later. Mm -hmm. But we can't really do those things. You don't go from a blue belt to a brown belt in the camp. Like that happens post camp. So the the big mistake would be, you know, focusing on one of those things. So however you want to approach it, separating out your conditioning, your power. So that's actually dictated by what the outcome goal for that real camp is, what the outcome goal for each week and actually in each individual day. And, and you should, as a, the strength conditioning coach or the whole team, the athlete come together and say, okay, today's goal Monday is leg power. Okay, then my boxing coach knows, hey, uh, we want to hit some mitts today, but we're not going to fry him no matter how good he looks. we got to keep this in the tank because we got to develop power today. But tomorrow is a conditioning day, and it's a red day, and so it doesn't really matter what drills we do, whatever the focus is. 
conditioning. And I'll, I'll give more specific. Um, again, this analogy is for fighting, but it really works for everything else if you're understanding the concept here, which is, say, say you're going to go to boxing practice. Well, oftentimes, sport coaches don't really have an outcome goal in mind. They just have, like, we've got we to gotta work on your hands. Okay, that's a good start. But what's that mean? Working on hand speed? Are we working on combinations? Are we working on a specific tactic to this? What are we working on? Okay, we're going to work on hand speed. Okay, great. Well, then I can walk out of the room because you already know probably as a boxing coach how to develop hand speed. But you have now identified that this is not a conditioning day. This is not a skill day. I'm not going to ask you to remember a certain combo to use in the fight at the same day we're trying to work conditioning, whatever it happens to be. But just getting them to that level to go, okay, I'm not telling what to do. You tell me what you want to get out of it today so I can work around you. Okay, great. That, that act makes them go through the act of going, oh, okay, today's goal is conditioning. So now you can do fun stuff, different stuff. The, the, the details don't necessarily matter as much because they just know, hey, my goal today is to get Kyle tired. Great, he did it. Or my goal is actually not to get him tired today. He needs to really get better at this combo he's struggling with or this defense to this combo because his opponent throws it a lot. If I try to do that on a day when I'm trying to also get him extremely tired, oh, and then I'm asking him to try to work on his hand speed. Oh, and then remember your foot. Now, now you've actually had a practice where you've burned a lot of calories. You've taken some of your volume, but you didn't really get the goal done. Yeah. And you end up working really hard for eight weeks, and you don't get much better. Yeah. And to, to extrapolate for everybody that's like, well, fuck, man, this guy spent a lot of time on fighting just because he yeah. you know, has some, uh, some question marks about his own career. How, how, we, how we extrapolate <laughs> that to the old G-pop, mm-hmm. general population. Like these concepts still yep. apply, Same right? Thing. Yep. So we yes. have like, it, it makes sense to have a goal for a period of time yep. and then to let that goal change for variety. But one thing that I loved that you were talking with, with Mark Bell about was the fact that just because you have a focus for six weeks or eight weeks, it doesn't mean that you put all your eggs in one basket. No, 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 no. no. So as a, obviously, you're, you know, you're talking powerlifting and things like that to a powerlifter. Yeah. And then you bring up the fact that it's a good idea to still hit, even one day a week, a good cardio session, right? Yeah, we can actually go into uh, the data here. My, my colleague, Jimmy Bagley at San Francisco State, has a really nice paper out. Uh, I think it's open access, so you don't have to pay to read it. Uh, in sports medicine, and it's something like the the interference effect of concurrent training. So scientifically, the word concurrent means you're doing a little bit of strength and a little bit of endurance or aerobic work at the same time. And where this came about is is the notion that, well, if you do aerobic exercise, it actually compromises your strength. And, I've read that a million times. Right. And I can tell you the whole history of how that all got started if you want, but I'll, I'll cut it short for now. <laughs> um, but we could go into It's a really interesting... I want you to dive. I know where you're heading with that. I want you to dive into that, but let's let's get this this so one piece down, and the, then we'll circle back. Yeah, and and this is a great misinterpretation of science. And, and so the idea is, okay, any amount of endurance exercise is going to automatically compromise any strength or muscle development. And, and while that's true to an extreme, if you're running a hundred miles a week and you're also trying to gain ten pounds of muscle on your leg, that's that's just not going to happen. But does that mean you can't jog four hundred meters for a warm up? No, that's not what that means at all. Like, does that mean you can't even jog half an hour one day a week? That's probably not enough interference. In fact, and Jimmy's data collectively is very clear showing that that actually does not cause an interference effect at all. In fact, there's probably some benefit there. Probably a lot of benefit. Probably a lot. So what, what, what this is, clearly this is a sliding scale. Where you at home land on that scale is totally dependent upon things like how fit are you. So if you are extremely fit, and I mean, like, you have really good conditioning. 
Well, you can probably actually handle a decent amount of conditioning and that's not gonna interfere with your strength. But if you're very, very unfit or you're just new to training or you only work out once or twice a week, well, now that added aerobic exercise is going to compromise recovery a little bit. But whatever that means to you, it is a sliding scale. So instead of giving a prescription and saying, well, okay, like a 30 minute jog is or isn't going, I would think of it more like this. Let's actually just use uh, like an RPE scale. So how difficult did it feel to you? Uh, so if you are going through and you're mixing in perceived some, exertion, yes, would sir. that be it for the G-pop? Right. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> uh, in general, the research suggests the more you can physically separate out the training sessions, the better. So if you're going to do 30 minutes of weights and then 30 minutes of cardio, okay, well, maybe, maybe that's not great. Maybe, maybe not. The science is actually changing a little bit on that. But if you can separate it by three or four hours, so you do your weights in the morning and then cardio at night, that actually looks like the interference goes way down. You even separate it more. You, you lift weights on Monday and you do your cardio on Tuesday. looks like there's almost no interference there. The only issue is if the volume of the cardio gets so much, it compromises the next day's lift, then you start to have an interference effect. So you at home, like, just use your own thing. Like, how much can you do where you still feel good the next day and you can still train equally hard? If, if it's not taking away and you physically feel there and you're eating enough calories, caloric surplus of 10 to 15%. Yeah, you don't need to go you know, tripling your calories. It's 10 to 15%. So if you're eating 2,000 calories a day and you move to 2,300 or something, that's enough to add lean muscle mass. You want to add a lot of fat that way. And if you're still eating enough calories doing that, you're probably going to be fine. And you can do your conditioning and you can do your strength work and your hypertrophy work. Uh, if you're not and you're feeling like a little bit sluggish the next day or you're still sore, well, then maybe back the conditioning down. Yeah, you don't bit. need to do a 10K. You yeah. could do like a, a one mile nose breathing slow run. Sure. Just especially with what's on the table, right? So yeah. all these things come down to goals. If the goal for the six weeks is strength That's, or for muscle mass, yes. then know that the cardio is just the, it's not the meat and potatoes. It's Dude, the side dish, right? Du double extra A for you. <laughs> That's exactly what I meant earlier. All those things I was talking about, they extend to all other areas too. Training, like well, what is the goal? Is the goal to really maximize strength in the next six weeks? Well, if that's the case, then we probably want to really minimize the conditioning for that six-week block. But that only works probably if you were fit to start. Mm -hmm. So if you are unfit and you, you don't have the conditioning to get through your strength workout, that's going to compromise your ability to get strong. So in that case, adding a little bit of conditioning will actually improve your ability to get strong. And this is actually one thing I talked about with Mark. And he said, yeah, yeah man, actually, I regret my powerlifting career. If I would have done more conditioning, I feel like I could have gotten stronger. I didn't have the conditioning to get through enough workouts to get strong enough. If the goal, though, is, hey, I want to get a little bit fitter and a little bit stronger, well, then fine. Adding more conditioning is fine because you're not trying to maximize strength. Yeah, you can have balance. And if that yeah. means that you pushed a little hard on cardio day and you're not quite as strong or you're a little bit tighter and you need to drop to 50% of your weight yeah. on the strength training day, that's okay. Yeah, because you it's... have established that goal a priori, right? Mm -hmm. Before you started, you understood that you were willing to give up a little bit of strength to add a little more conditioning, and then you're actually you're in a good spot. So, it, but, but you can't have those conversations unless you set those goals out to begin with. What am I really trying to do? And if you're trying to, oh, in six weeks, I want to lose 35 pounds. I want to double my back squat strength. I want to uh, take two minutes off my mile run. Oh, and then I want to improve my hamstring flexibility. Oh, and then I want to run my bit. Like, okay, well, now, come on. Like, now how do you expect? Yeah, you can't get all the things all at works. once. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, shocking. You, you yeah. know, everything got a little bit better. I keep getting sick. I'm run down all the time. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, I, I tell people one of the Words of encouragement is have an acceptable range of success and failure. And so if you said, all right, 
uh, I want to do this eight-week workout. I'm going to get really focused for summer, whatever it's going to be. And I want to lose weight. Okay, well, what's your acceptable range? What would you consider success? What would you consider failure? It doesn't even matter what the numbers are. Right? But if you put that out in front of yourself and you can go, oh, okay. That way, if you say, look, I, I need to lose 35 pounds. It's probably unrealistic to lose 35 pounds in six weeks. Okay, what would be an acceptable range of failure? Right, so I think if I lost five or less pounds, I'd consider that a failure. Okay, what would be success if I lost um, you know, anything more than seven? Okay, great. Well, now when you show up and you lost six after six weeks, you go, oh, that was a win. Had though you started and I said, hey, my program, you're going to lose six weeks and six pounds in six weeks, you'd be like, well, that sucks. Yeah. What's well, the same? It's the same fucking thing. Like you actually, the, the numbers are the exact same, but the fact that you didn't establish expectations properly and you never had that conversation with yourself and you never put it down on paper, now all of a sudden a win actually looks like a loss. And so whatever those numbers are, have an acceptable range of success and failure so you can look at that and go, yeah, well, I, I, I really wanted to lose 30, but I told myself if I lost seven, I'd be happy with myself. And I lost seven, so I'm good here. Um, I, I think that's helpful for the general population is just to establish those whys. What am I doing it for? What's the purpose? And then mix and match. The other thing with the, the concurrent training stuff is it honestly it depends on on your physiology. Some of us handle conditioning very very well, joints, muscles, everything lines up great. Like we end up being fine. Some of us don't, right? It also depends on things like your mechanics and your technique. So, for example, can you add in cardio? Well, maybe if you don't run a lot and you don't run well, adding a bunch of jogging may actually bang up the knees. All of a sudden, my back hurts. Yeah, your heels striking on too right. much, you know, shoes. Well, now all of a sudden, of course, that compromised your gains because you actually added a bunch of eccentric trauma. But if you maybe run all the time, you grew up running, you spent 10 years running, that's probably such a limited stress on you because you're very efficient in those positions. It's not going to have nearly the interference effect. So it's all relative. Um, it, it's really kind of a sliding scale. So if you understand that, implement as you see fit. Yeah. And if you're a shitty runner... There's, that's why they have airdynes and assault bikes and yeah, concept whatever two rollers, else, right? Whatever or yoga there's, or whatever. There's like, many tools, yeah, right? Do whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. So let's 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 do circle back because I really love this. I want you to talk about kind of where these things split off in the strength game and uh, like the history of strength. Oh yeah. How we know <laughs> if you're if you're in your 30s, you might remember some of these names. If you're a younger millennial crowd. Uh, these might be first for you, but this fascinated the hell out of me the first time I heard you talk about this. And your your podcast is the oh the body of body, knowledge body of knowledge, and yeah. that's on the first episode. Is that right? Uh, I don't think so. Six? I think this one was uh, biases collide. I think is the name of that one. Um, and I think it's actually we'll get the number. Sorry, Josh, six something like that. Three, <laughs> I think it nine, might have been six, yeah. somewhere in there. Uh, yeah, the, the that podcast is a little bit different. It's not a running thing. It's only nine episodes total. And it's just sort of history you got storytelling. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Season two should be out uh, next year, early next year. Nice. Soon we got some really cool. Uh, the the theme for season one was change, and the theme for season two is actually Sherpa. So once you've identified a change, like how do you identify the people that help you get that change to get up the mountain, get down the mountain, and also tell you sort of, hey, today's not a good day to climb. Mm-hmm. That's not the right mountain for you yet. Um, so it, we're really excited about that. Anyways. So with this idea of change, I told we told the story of change from a lot of different perspectives. And one of the ones we talked about was the history of this whole field and how the supplement industry was started. And this is the story you're alluding to, right? Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I'll trace you sort of all the way back. Um, I'll give you the condensed version of it. You know, I'll make you go to the whole episode to listen to the yeah, whole hour. That's version. what I want. I want the I want the uh, cliff notes. That way, people got to go tune in. Yeah. For sure. the, the it was really interesting. So uh, in the 1800s, uh, we were still sort of figuring out this human physiology and this exercise thing, and then some pretty interesting events happened that almost single-handedly led to concepts like, hey, strength training actually is bad for your heart. Uh, strength training reduces mobility, makes you tight, you lose flexibility, all these things that you and I kind of like grew up hearing. And it had been phased out a little bit by then, but not entirely. And if you're, if you're Kyle or Isaac or older, like you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're younger, you're like, what? Maybe you haven't heard these things. But uh, a singular, almost a singular event happened that caused this. And for about 30, 50, 60 years, this idea sort of reigned true. And scientifically, the benefits of aerobic exercise was just coming on board. People realized, how oh, this is good for you. And most of the scientists, if not all of them, were still in the boat of saying, hey, strength training is actually, not only is it not good for you, it's actually deleterious to your health. And there was this guy named Peter Karpovich, who was at Springfield College, and he was one of the most pronounced, prolific, worldwide-known physiologist, scientists. And he was a starch advocate of strength training is bad for you. And a young student wanting to get into physical education enrolled in Springfield College and was super excited to learn under the legendary Peter Karpovich. And was really upset because his first class, Karpovich is going on and on and on about strength training, and the student asked, well, have you ever lifted? No, 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 that stuff's bad for you. It's like, well, yeah, but there's this guy named... Bob Hoffman down in, down the street in New York, and, and he, he's doing some awesome stuff. He's got this magazine that's coming out. He's got all these athletes. Hoffman is the guy that started York, started York Barbell, the famous company. Uh, he had a, an amazing magazine for a long time called Strength and Health, uh, which was an homage to some previous stuff you'll have to hear about in the episode. And, and Karpovich was like, well, whatever. He sort of dismissed it. And the student was really broken hearted because he's like, I thought that a college professor is supposed to be the one who... You're open-minded, you really understand things, you are the expert. Uh, you think of the prestige that you give to even, now I'm a college professor, right? And some people give me un, unexpected and undeserved prestige because of that. Well, it was worse back then. Right? If you were, nowadays you guys have the internet and you can go fact find and, and search out. And, and it's college professors are no longer the sole key to holding all information. But back then, before the internet, they were. Like the, this is the reason you paid exorbitant prices to go to college because somebody had information that only way you got it was to pay and attend their classes. So the student was brokenhearted and he basically said, well, what if I bring this guy up here? And he reached out to Hoffman. Hoffman agreed. And so they put on this big show on campus. And Hoffman comes up and he brought in uh, a bunch of his lifters. And these people were, this is still in the 1950s. So this is when bodybuilding, powerlifting, weightlifting, all this was really the same thing. There wasn't this split differentiation between mm -hmm. weightlifting and powerlifting. And, then the, and the, the people put on this big demonstration. And you could see that the show was on stage, but the real show was in the audience because Karpovich was in the audience. And this is the, the 1950s version of like sitting back on an internet fight on Facebook and not actively participating, but just watching the people bitch, you know, back and forth, <laughs> hitting the like button and being like, oh shit, get the popcorn, like this is going down, right? <laughs> And so people were really there to see what, what Karpovich is going to do with, with Hoffman and his guys. And so they go on and do the whole show, and they finish, and there's a Q&A. And everyone's finished, and Karpovich finally stands up. Because I just have one question for you. So will you scratch your back? 
and the guy on stage was uh, a world champion at the time, weightlifter and bodybuilder. And he's like, you know, jokingly said, eh, it doesn't itch. Hey, <laughs> some joke on, but he goes, well, apart. And he starts reaching around, this part over here, over here, where do you want me to stretch? And he starts effectively answering his question, right? He's shutting him down right there. And Karpovich is like, oh, shit. He fully anticipated this guy wouldn't be able to, like, reach his arm up. He'd be so immobile because he was a bodybuilder. And then he started asking other things. And every time you'd ask these guys, they would just knock it out. And then they started, once they could sort of tell they were, they were going, they just started going after him. Uh, they dropped into full splits. One guy grabbed two 50-pound dumbbells and did a standing backflip with them. Started doing everything. And Carpenter was just like, oh, shit. What can you say? My entire scientific career, all of his scientific publications, all of his teaching was against a method he had actually never tried. He'd never been around anybody actually doing it. And now he was confronted with pretty clear, undeniable evidence that this is actually not what's going on. So he's like, shit. So he had a real dilemma there. His internal bias against strength training had been smashed. And with evidence like that, what could he do? He could either double down or he could go, yeah, I was wrong. So, of course, being a scientist, he went backstage and said, yeah, man, I was wrong. I apologize. And he changed his entire career at that point and started basically actually studying strength training and started to notice, oh, man, actually it doesn't make you inflexible. Actually it doesn't make you bad for your health. It actually is really important for your health. And that almost single-handedly changed the whole trajectory of the field because now strength training was acceptable. And then he actually went down the road and had a confrontation with one of his former uh, students named Joe Weider, the Weider brothers. <laughs> and Weider was like, hey, we got to change the game here because people aren't really about performance. People are about aesthetics. And Hoffman was a performance guy. If it doesn't improve functionality, if you can't do a standing backflip, if you can't do splits, if you can't move around, the stuff is useless. I mean, Weider said, you know, for every guy that, show me one guy who wants to be strong, and I'll show you 10 who want to look strong. And they had this philosophical breakdown. Well, there was a big fight, and there was propaganda and magazines going back and forth, and Weider's main protege was a guy named Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold took off, uh, pumping iron came in, and people were like, holy crap, not only is this now not bad for me, but I can actually use this stuff to legitimately be a human superhero. I mean, this is before the internet. This is before cart. Like, this is there's no memes here. Like, you you could legitimately make yourself look like that. The aesthetics, the supplement lines, all launched off of that. And so, because of that, from 1970-ish to really the mid 2000s, aesthetics and bodybuilding reigned supreme in fitness. Uh, Weider went on to start Muscle and Fitness. Right, so strength and health Small died out. publication. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But if you just look at the word strength and health, that died. Muscle and fitness took off, right? Which is now it's all about muscle as opposed to functional outcomes. It's not about health and it's not about performance anymore. Now it's all about looking and the aesthetics mm -hmm. of it. So because of that, everything, all the concepts that you and I grew up on, never do this, always do this, right? This is another way to do it. A lot of those are actually true but only under that umbrella of if you're trying to optimize aesthetics. And yeah. that's okay when you're trying to do that. But the rest of the time when you're trying to do other things, those are actually not only not true, they're probably bad uh, recommendations. Yeah, like 10 sets of uh, preacher curls isn't sure. going to help you throw a baseball or, sure. move, or throw a punch better. Right, or I mean, you get other examples of, um, like you listening at home, uh, true or false? 
it's good or bad. Um, I can't do true or false and then say good or bad. Right? Sorry, <laughs> bad teacher moment. Uh, but true or fat, it's true or false. It's bad to work out at the same muscle group twice in a row, two days in a row. Right? Well, I, I know your gut instinct right now. Your gut instinct is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to work a muscle out twice in a row. Did, did you, when you are in MMA, get to have every other day work, work out twice a month? No, we didn't pick, like, today is uh, jab day. Yeah, and yeah. tomorrow is right leg kick day. <laughs> no. And tomorrow is left day. Left How about when you are a college football player? Did you yeah. get to pick which days in season? No. No. Yeah, today's swim move day. Tomorrow's yeah. spin move day. Today is leg day. Yeah, because I'm running. I'm sprinting. I'm pushing every single day. Like, you train like an athlete, right? So the idea of, of should I train a muscle two days in a row, I'm not saying it's false. I'm saying let's look at the question. What am I trying to do? Trying to maximize muscle growth in the quadricep. Well, then maybe it's pretty good to not train at two days in a row. So you allow recovery, optimal growth. But if you're trying to do any number of X other adaptations, well, then that, that, that truth or that law is completely out the window. It's no longer true under those circumstances. The problem was we were so confused for so many decades because we were always looking at it subconsciously through the lens of, this is what you do to maximize aesthetics. And people, which, again, it's fine. It's just that people didn't realize that that was the scope they were looking at. And so some people look back, and this is what opened up for other functional fitness movements because people looked and they're like, well, God, this bodybuilding stuff is actually not, I don't feel better. Uh, I'm not actually getting any this. I'm, I'm not improving performance. I'm not making better athletes. I'm, I'm not feeling better. My energy, whatever other issues. So therefore, all this must be wrong. Yeah, well, and, and just to jump in real quick, like you're going to do an episode with Zach Evanish coming up, right? Yeah, do his and podcast so, tomorrow. And that was a, it was a really fascinating reading his book yeah. just to understand like how many of us that grew up in the 80s and witnessed all this and, and yeah. read every muscle mag and loved Arnold, loved watching it. him on TV, you know, yeah. and you're like, all right, this is how I got to do the training split, yeah. you know, and then you actually go to perform in some type of athletic competition and all your shit doesn't work. Like, wait a minute, I, I haven't done... <laughs> push, pull, squat, hinge, rotational, bilateral. I haven't made my body work in a, in a movement pattern that is what we actually is usable, you know, in, in sport. Not in only anything. that, but did you ever do any of those? I'll just say muscle, uh, Arnold's bodybuilding. Did you oh, ever do? Yeah, I did. I did all that. Dude, stuff. Do you know what it feels like to try to get through one of those workouts? You're fucking crushed. It's Why? brutal. Because you're not physically ready to do that workout. Like you should not be doing what Arnold did unless you have Arnold's genetics and Unless you have the training and, and background that he had, you should probably do at best what Arnold did when he was in his first year of training. Well, and that's another thing like that. people miss too. Like when you read the modern day encyclopedia of bodybuilding, uh, beginner and intermediate both use a lot of compound exercises. Yeah, there's a lot of squat, deadlift, bench, pull, you know, pull ups. Right, and that's like that's for ninety percent of people that are trying to get yeah bigger, stronger, faster. Yeah, yeah, right. That sure. has carryover. Sure. That's GPP. Like that's shit that's going to apply. That's yeah. actually going to help you. When you start nitpicking and saying today's tricep and left calf day, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Start to, you're missing something there, right? Well, yeah. that's fine if you look like Dorian Yates and you're fine tuning at that point. Yeah, I, uh, I'm giving a talk in uh, well this weekend uh, at NSCA's personal trainer conference, right? And it's uh, my talk is on exercise choice. So this is when you're deciding what exercise to do today. Right? How do I optimize that system? And I, I, I would, I actually break it up into outcome goals. So we'll just we won't do all of them. We'll just do a couple of them. So say you're trying to maximize strength. Do you pick your exercises by the muscles you want to use or the movement pattern? Well, in that goal, most of us would say the movement pattern is more important because you're trying to develop strength in a movement pattern. You don't necessarily even care what happens at the muscle level, assuming you're synchronizing right or using the proper muscles. You're not using your low back when you're trying to use your glutes and you know things like that. 
but it's generally you're trying to develop strength in a movement. When you're trying to actually develop hypertrophy in an actual muscle, well, then you choose by muscle group, right? Not by movement, making sure you're targeted. But what about things like physical therapy, rehab, or prehab? I think those are also good times to choose by the actual muscle group. And you can identify, like, here's a good example. Uh, we'll use the shoulder, okay? There is, you've got biceps muscles, so biceps two. You've got two main bicep muscles. And most people realize the bicep crosses the elbow joint, which is a way of saying when I flex my bicep, it moves the elbow joint, moves my hand closer to my shoulder. Got it. But people don't realize the, sh the biceps crosses the shoulder joint. So it also contributes to lifting your arm straight in front of you. Now, muscles don't work when they are slack over one joint. Okay, so what that means is one of my bicep muscles starts in the middle of my arm, right? It starts there, and then it inserts on the past my elbow. So when I contract it there, it's always on stretch. But the other one actually crosses both shoulder and elbow joint. So here's what that means. Imagine a preacher curl, okay, where your elbows are out in front of you, right? You know, lay on a table, and you're doing a curl. Well, that one muscle that starts on your arm and connects the other part of your arm is fine. doesn't care. But the actually one that crosses the shoulder joint is short. So it doesn't actually contract. So it's not that a preacher curl is good or bad for you. It's that it's very specific to one of the bicep muscles. Contrast this to imagine laying on an incline bench, you know, laying backwards where the arm hangs behind you, and you're doing a bicep curl that way. Now, since the shoulder is stretched because your arm's going way behind you, now that bicep muscle is actually contributing to the force production, and now it's being put on, since it's being put on stretch, now it contracts. So... Imagine I'm in a physical therapy situation and for some reason you've identified, hey, man, I got this shoulder pain. I don't really know what's going on. It's kind of irritating the hell out of me, but I need to get some elbow flexion work in. Oh, I actually know that I can go to a preacher curl because now the part of the bicep that crosses the shoulder joint is not actually going to be contributing so much so it probably won't irritate the shoulder. That's just one example. You can do the same. I could do the same thing for every joint, by the way. We could walk through. If you understand which ones cross, uh, seated calf races are a great example. Right, so the gastroc crosses the knee joint and the ankle joint. So when you do a seated calf raise, the gastroc is not really doing much. It's almost entirely soleus. So these are really good examples of saying, okay, this is a good time to identify when to choose exercises by the muscle group versus the movement. And we could go through, what about fat loss? What about all these other things? Sorry. Fat loss, just for the record, is probably not something where you start selecting by the muscle group, right? Yeah. This is more like select by movement. And so we, we don't have to have like, well, I do it this way. Like, what's right? Do I, do I lift by? Yeah. No, there's no. So it's, much. There's, we attach fucking, you could say it's the, the tribe thing. Yeah. You could say it's for whatever reason, but so much of what we consider our identity. Mm -hmm. of this is what I do. It's worked for me. So this is the only way to eat, or this is the only way to lift. This is yeah. the only way to do cardio, or this is the best way, right? Like, right. so what is the best way to there get is stronger? No what is the best yeah. way to gain more muscle? It right? doesn't matter. Like Those things are not helpful for most people. If we can give them situations and circumstances and awareness and scaffolding of, of selection of choice and understanding of processes, then we can go, oh, okay, well, what's your goal? What are you trying to, to work for? Oh, okay, well, in that case, here are the two or three rules. Right? Oh, you have a different goal. Okay, well, now we've moved on. But the fact that we have to have one system and there has to be one answer, uh, I mean, I know why, but I don't know why we continually search for that. Why is it so important there is one way to do that? I think we have enough variability in, in human species and we have enough variability in success. That answer is clear that one way doesn't exist and it never, ever will. 
why we continue to, to search for that, again, I do understand it, but like it's not helpful. I think we can relieve that stress in going like, there is no magic. <sighs> okay. We're good here? All right. Now, let's just talk about what's going to help you right now. Do A, B, and C. We're done here. Yeah. And just try. Just yeah. do it, right? Yeah. Like Mark Bell, when I was on his, on his show, he was talking about how many times people will ask him, what's the best way to lift weights? Do I lift like a bodybuilder? Do I lift like a powerlifter? Do I do CrossFit? And he's like, if you've never lifted, lifted weights before, anything, as anything. long as you're not going to hurt yourself technique-wise and you have somebody that are watching you making sure you're doing it yeah. properly, you're going to get a benefit from no matter what you do. Oh, yeah. Just like a kid, yeah. right? You can teach a kid anything and he's going to pick it up quickly and yeah. there'll be a response there. You're going to get stronger. Yeah, yeah. You're going to gain muscle. You're going to lose fat. You're going to get all the things that you're shooting for just okay. by starting to do it. Right? I, had, uh, I had another friend, Adam Knopka. Um, I think he was up at Mayo Clinic at the time. And he did a really interesting study and Matt Harbor. And we looked at, uh, I think they were 70-year-old, 60 or 70-year-old women. And he put them through 12 weeks of cycling training. And they showed equal, if not greater, hypertrophy in the quadriceps from only doing, I think, two or maybe three days a week of 30 minutes steady-state cycling. Massive improvements in quadriceps size. And they used that and I actually interpreted it differently than they did. They were like, wow, this shows that you know, hypertrophy is not specific to hypertrophy training and resistance exercise. But my interpretation was they're so untrained, anything was enough. Yeah. Like anything was I enough. saw calf improvement from walking for 20 minutes exactly, a day. Exactly, exactly. You know? Like, yeah. yeah, okay, I get that. Great. Now let's move that to progress to the next thing. And let's move to progress to the next thing. Because like, why we're so, I feel like we get upset sometimes when people succeed. Like, why are we so mad? It worked. Great. Why bitch and complain and, and talk and, and, and try to knock them off that pedestal when we should be celebrating the fact that, hey, man, congratulations. You got a lot better. Your legs are stronger. You're more fit. You feel better. Great. Ready to progress? Ready to go to the next level? Fantastic. Awesome. Instead of shitting on, well, like, that's not true. That doesn't help anything. Yeah. That doesn't help them understand. It doesn't help them. Like, if you look at the data on fat loss, it's clear. Adherence is the number one factor in which diet is going to be more effective. What you will actually stick to. What you will actually execute. So my prescription for, for fat loss, diet or exercise is why. Well, number one, you have to find what they are going to actually stick to. And then you can make modifications. My friend Marie Spano, who's a nutritionist for the uh, Atlanta Hawks and a bunch of other stuff, she, she gave her a wonderful presentation years ago, so I'll give her due credit. She's probably not the first one to think about it, but she's the first one to express it this way. So it's important I give her that credit. What she says, like sometimes she'll have an athlete come in and, and they are over here, far left, with their diet. Uh, she's not a fan of, say, ketogenic diet for athletes. Okay, great. Maybe they want to do keto. And she wants them to be on the far end of the spectrum over here. She's like, if I try to walk them from, if they walk in my office talking about the benefits of keto and they bring up a study with them and they're really excited about it or they tell me, listen to this podcast or whatever, and my immediate conversation is friction with them and explaining to them all the science behind it, you know what's going to happen? They're going to walk in my office. They're going to do it anyways. This, this didn't help. What I can do, though, is take them and say, okay, you're over here. I think you'd be better over here. Can I nudge you a little bit? Can we walk you? Well, what concessions will you make? Okay, great. And then she's like, it might take me a year to finally get them to the, to the thing I think is actually best for them. But I have to realize these are people. We have real people concerns when we try to give advice to somebody. So we have to be able to help them get to where we want. But we can't expect them to jump completely off the ship, especially when they're really excited about something. This guy walked in or these people walk in and they're really excited to make a nutritional change for the positive. Don't kill that energy. Yeah. Don't don't kill it. Don't kill the motivation by shitting on everything they want to do. Can we make some modifications? Yes. But let's express good leadership 
let's use that motivation and maybe slowly start to gear it over time, show them success, and eventually they'll start figuring out, oh boy, this, this part's not going great, this part's not going great, and then they'll come to you and go, all right, I want to make this, okay, now you can walk them to your system, but don't, don't ruin that energy. Try to keep it as long as you can. Yeah, and then try things too. You know, like they got, when I interviewed Dr. Michael Russo, he was like, look, compared to the standard American diet, the sad diet, yeah. all diets work. Yeah, hey, vegan, yeah. vegetarian, raw vegan, paleo, low well, carb, keto, Atkins, whatever you want to do, yeah. they all work better yeah. if you stick to them. Absolutely. Right? And there's some differences there. Turns out people who have autoimmune or some type of gut issues do no better doubt. on paleo, low carb, low FODMAP, things like that. So there are specifics, but at the same time, it's just like weight training. You yeah. know, you know, something you talked about with Mark was do you want to eat one food the rest of your life? Yeah. Do you wanna do you wanna lift a certain way the rest of your life? Like that doesn't make sense. So as we rotate through these things, you can continue to see benefit. I felt great doing a ketogenic diet for the better part of two years. Yeah. And I used that for certain goals, like running an ultra marathon, yeah. things like that. For cognitive function, I felt better. But now doing carb backloading, intermittent fasting, and different things, like I still feel amazing. Yeah. So like, are carbs bad? No. What's the goal, right? Do yeah. I want to? And I saw some negatives from the ketogenic diet in terms of my response on the jujitsu mat, in terms yep. of when I was dropping below six reps on deadlift or anything like that. Like, yep. yeah, man, I'm I'm missing something here for sure. You know, and there's a right way and a wrong way to do anything. It's yep. not like, hey, carbs are cool, so I'm gonna eat fucking donuts now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Th but that's an excuse. You're being disingenuous. Yeah, you know that when you when you start saying things like that, that that's not really the interpretation. Yeah, I don't understand also why we have to be. Uh, who was saying this the other day? Uh, was it you or somebody else? Else was just with, but like, I think it was your friend uh, Nate last night. I don't, I don't I can't remember. Anyways, doesn't matter. Uh, like the you know you used to be able to if you went on the internet and you talked about things like politics or you talked about religion, like you would start a fight for sure, right? Now you can add nutrition to that. Like, you make a post about nutrition, fight. Like, it's going to be a fight for sure. Yeah. Like, why? Why, do, why are we so literally religious and cult about nutrition? Why can't it be like, hey, you know, I'm going to do intermittent fasting for six weeks. Oh, that was great. I loved it. I did this too. Well, okay, yeah. Uh, I also loved jiu-jitsu for six weeks. Now I'm going to actually maybe do more kickboxing. Like, no one was saying anything about that. Hey, great, man. Awesome job. I love them both. Well, I, I can have the same love for different eating styles different eating habits like well, why is it like not this one's and the body's needs fluctuate Absolutely. too depending upon goals depending upon age all that stuff yeah. that all plays a factor yeah it's yeah. all in it's in flux yeah. right it's never it's why, why we have to be married to systems like that makes no sense it doesn't make tele tele teleological sense it doesn't make scientific sense it doesn't make evolutionary sense it doesn't make behavioral sense it doesn't even make logical sense so why we have to stick to that like on no level does it pass my my scrutiny so let's let's kind of switch gears here, and uh, you have an excellent book, Unplugged, that you wrote with uh, Brian McKenzie, and so you know, kind of piggybacking off of where all this weight training started, oh, yeah. where all the fitness industry industry blew up, you know, yeah. supplement industry, and then big box gyms and everything, and the the madness of of Gold's Venice, and now you've got you know giant twenty four hour fitness mega centers and yeah. all these different places, and that includes the the fitness tracking market, you know, like how we we yeah are obsessed with electronics and we're glued to the data that we see on our iPhones. Your book really is, is the message is phenomenal because it's how do we get back to nature? How do we, and this tackles so many concepts that stretch across fitness, you yeah. know, like how do we get the most out of life? Right. How, how do we improve our quality of life? Right. The book is uh, called Unplugged Evolve from Technology to Upgrade Your Fitness, Performance, and Consciousness. And Really, Brian, Phil White, the, the other author, and myself, 
came at it from different angles. Uh, so I'm mostly a scientist, so I'll dabble with some athletes. But I, I don't have 120 athletes coming through my door weekly, like like a, a, a true coach would or something. Uh, but Brian McKenzie, the main other co-author, is more of a practitioner, right? He'll dabble in science, but he has hundreds of athletes and thousands of athletes he's coached. And so we wanted to tackle this topic from both sides, like what's the science say, the research say, and then what's what are we seeing in the practitioner field? But to give people guidance. Uh, I think the mistake would have been to try to write a book that literally went through every single fitness technology one by one, right? Because the book would have never ended. I'd have to do version two, version three, you know, every six months we got more and more and more. So instead we try to top tackle the idea by concept, right? Which is like, what are the concepts behind it? And you can actually change the phys- uh, the, the the technology in or out. And I think a lot of our arguments are sustainable, which is we're not anti-technology. That is a tsunami. And you'd rather be on top of that wave than underneath it. And so I'm not advocating or preaching, hey, give up your technology, check your phone less. Like, yeah, we all know that. What we try to say in there is, here are the common downfalls and some of the reasons people have failures when they use technology in their fitness performance training. And here are the ways you can use them to succeed. And I I feel like we made the argument from everything ranging from heart rate variability to wearable full health monitors to a mirror. That's all technology. What were the concepts that constantly cause failure and what are the concepts that constantly cause success and how do we properly integrate them into our lives? And, and that's really what we try to do with the book is get yeah. through those ideas. Yeah, you do it well. And I think that there's, and obviously there's science that backs quite a bit of it, but even just like the science of walking, I loved the study on depression yeah. in Japan on the difference between walking in a city versus walking in a forest. Yeah, Like almost zero improvement going for a daily walk in the city versus going for a walk in the forest. I, I made this uh, mistake myself. So I live in Southern California. I've been in, in Long Beach for, you know, getting close to three years. And I'm, I'm pretty introverted for the most part. I don't like walking around, like chatting to my neighbors about like, I'm usually in focus mode during the day. And I noticed it'd been like a year, a year and a half or something like that. And I've been walking around the neighborhood and my, and my neighbor walking my two dogs. I have two shepherd mixes. If you're not a dog person, they're super high energy. They need a tremendous amount of exercise. Like a walk a day is not sufficient. They need to be run to exhaustion several times a day or problems happen, right? <laughs> and I realized, like, man, as I'm walking them around, I'm constantly wearing headphones. I don't know a single neighbor by face or by name at all. I don't even know what street I'm on. I know my street, but the one over, I don't even know the name of it. If an emergency situation happened, I'm really in trouble. I, I don't have any, if someone said go to Anaheim Street, I'm like, oh, my jeep oh i don't know that's the next one over like it's 30 feet from your house how do you not know where anaheim street is i didn't notice the trees i didn't notice there was all kinds of amazing wildlife we saw huge turkey vultures in the in the, in the trees right by my house i'm like there have you ever seen turkey vultures they're awesome there's 100 pound sea tortoises that have moved into the little river stream right by our house there are seals in there all the time on their back like eating fish ripping a piece all these things i'm literally walking by every day completely oblivious to and I did it because I thought I was being productive and efficient with my time. I got to walk the dogs. I got to take them out, get them some exercise. Oh, let me listen to this podcast. Let me take this phone call. Right? And I was constantly trying to bring things in and not bringing the real things in. I was trying to bring in data and not bringing awareness in. What I realized was, oh, you know what? Maybe I should take my headphones out. And this only hit me actually after I got some blood work done and my vitamin D came back. You know, insufficient. And so, of course, my honest reaction when you get blood 
work that says low vitamin D, what do you do? Most of us would say, buy vitamin D supplements, right? <laughs> and that was my gut. But then I stopped and I'm like, wait a minute. I live in Southern California. This is just should be, if I get vitamin D supplementation, that's covering, that's putting a Band-Aid. That's not fixing the problem. The problem is not my vitamin D is low. The problem is I'm living a lifestyle that I'm not getting enough vitamin D. Fix the lifestyle. Don't just cover up with the vitamin D because you're then going to continually have to supplement with vitamin D. And so this all hit together at the same time when I went, okay, fine. I'm going to walk, I'm going to go outside and exercise the dog more. I'll take them outside more. Now, when I did that, like this whole cascade kicked off. I took the headphones out. I made my own I'm exercising the dogs more. They get more exercise. They behave better. That reduces stress on my life and my wife, right? She's happier. Less things go wrong in my house. More time I get to spend with her. This kicked off. Oh, also, turn out when I'm walking these guys or when we're going for runs and I don't have my headphones plugged in, ideas started flowing in. Problems I've been working on started. Oh my God, this is how I'm going to solve it. And I get these amazing ideas. I started meeting people in the neighborhood. Right? I started uh, seeing all these things. Now I actually found a better place to take them where they get better exercise. It's closer to the house. I didn't even, it was uh, 600 yards from my house. I didn't even know it was there because I was so just like down, like head down to earth. And so when I fixed the lifestyle, all these cascades of problems went away. When I unplugged for a second and I fixed the approach, that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is the kind of conversations we have. It's not that headphones or podcasting is bad for you, but I maybe don't need them every single time I walk. Yeah, every second of the day. I don't need to be plugged in at all the time because what am I missing out in terms of if you're constantly bringing in information, you're never processing. You're never making sustainable changes. So that's just one example of how I'm like, okay, these are conversations we need to have with people. Um, you're having a hard time implementing the things you're learning on podcasts because you're listening to three and a half hours of podcasts a day. Then you're not taking any action. You're not processing. Nothing's sinking in. You're not meditating on it. Or moving through it so hell yeah brother that's yeah, amazing man. talk about some other things that have helped you with your mindset obviously we i had followed you prior to this but we got a chance to really meet and hang out at the xpt event down oh, yeah. in malibu yep and that was that was phenomenal i think we they paired us up in the car together quite often yeah and I, <laughs> we were pretty glued yeah uh, in conversation but um we follow a lot of the similar things that that improve and i spoke about this on a facebook live post uh a few weeks back but like things that give you carryover in how you deal with stress, things that make you a stronger person internally yeah. as well as externally that help you map out life because there's no shortage of challenges or stressors in life. Yeah. No matter how old you are, they keep coming at you. You keep getting tested, yeah. and it's all perspective, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of that has to do with what is the work that you put in on your daily basis to make yourself a stronger, yeah. more hard-nosed person. We, we all have different backgrounds, and we need to appreciate and embrace that. So what's a stress for me is not a stress for you and vice versa. And so I, I don't think we can give blanket prescriptions. You need to go do A, you need to go B. But I think we can continue to search and try to have perspective. Now, I come from that country background like I talked about, right, which is generally a very hard-nosed background. I resonate very well with Jocko Willink, right? Those things are like, yeah, like just get it done. That actually works well for me. That doesn't work for everybody else. So don't take that approach if, if you react adversely to that. And so I'll give you a couple of specific examples that I like, but please, like, please understand this may not work for you. You may react the opposite. And if you do, great, do something totally different. For example, I don't jive a ton with meditation, but
but some of my closest friends, it's the best thing that they've ever done. So I really encourage that, and I'm, I'm so happy they found that. And I've tried it. I'll probably try it again. I'll keep, but for whatever reason. However, things like the cold exposure, immediate to affect with me, but hunger, fasting, huge effect for me. I hate it. I don't do well <laughs> with those things. So I do that often. When I really need to set up a challenge, like that's what I'm going to. And I've gotten a lot better over time. I've done a lot of playing with things like um, food uh, frequency throughout the day. I feel best. I function best. I, my performance is highest when I eat a bunch of small meals throughout the day. Having said that, because of that, oftentimes then I choose suffering. And I choose to not eat. And I choose to do one meal a day for a while. Or I'll choose these other things because that's where I lack. And that's where I'm going to have to put a bunch of challenges. If we look at us physically, the human species, we evolved for a couple hundred thousand, maybe a couple of million years, depending on where you want to put the line, doing everything we can to reduce and minimize stress because that improved likelihood of survival. We developed housing to reduce thermal stress. We developed clothing. We developed food and water so that we wouldn't go... Refrigeration in grocery stores. Medicine, right? Mm -hmm. So we improve our livelihood. So, great. Well, the problem with all that was... For the first 200,000 years, it was very, very effective and helpful. But we got too good at it. And now we are in this position, we actually traced, this is a whole separate episode of, of, the, of my podcast, the nutrition one, but we actually got to a place now where we have food abundance. And we have comfort abundance. We actually have to start choosing suffering and manufacturing discomfort. We've never had to do that before because we had a goal for the entire history of our species to minimize or otherwise eliminate suffering. And oh, fuck me, it worked. We're really good at it. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Now, the problem is we developed a biological system that functions optimally when stressed. And when stressed in a variety of different ways. And we have reduced that stress and reduce that variation and we've exchanged it for different kinds of stress. And so we no longer go through say periods of massively fed than massive fasting, cold or hot, and we end up going a little bit overfed, a little bit underslept, a little bit underhydrated, and a little bit extra cognitively stressed and we stay on that peg for years at a time. And that gives us chronic problems. Instead of going massive stress, massive work recovery, Underslept for a little bit and then balancing that with massively slept, recovering 12 hours a night. We end up just going six and a half hours of sleep, a little bit underhydrated, a little bit overfed, and all of a sudden we feel terrible. So we have to step back and go, whoa, whoa, the natural world has left us. The natural stressors have left us. We have cellular processes like heat shock proteins, cold shock proteins, brown fat that are activated, we'll call it, during only things like thermal stress. As a byproduct of them, they do things like autophagy. They clean out dead debris, cellular debris, misfolded proteins, other things that cause problems. Well, they go dormant when they're not, when they're not activated. They're not really stressed. So because of that, we actually lose that tertiary or secondary or tertiary effect of cleaning up debris. We actually developed in a system that required that debriefing or defragging, and now we've left that over, and we wonder why we have these physical problems. So it sounds so counterintuitive, but... To really reclaim our health, we actually have to now start re-choosing some of that suffering 
We engineered out. And we did that 40 years ago, 1954 or so, when we realized, oh, we've gotten to the place, agriculture and lifestyle-wise, where we've, we've almost eliminated all physical activity. And so we engineered and developed this whole new thing called exercise to replace the lost physical activity. Well, we actually realize now, okay, wait a minute. So if I work out really hard for 30, hour, 30 minutes a day, and then I sit around the other 23 and a half hours, I'm actually still in bad health. So now we have to replace the basal physical activity and we have to replace the high-end exercise. We're pretty good at those things, but we haven't caught up with the nutrition. We haven't caught up with the thermal. We haven't caught up with the sleep or the hydration stuff. So that is really where we've got to start understanding the stress. And, and we can get that mental strength by choosing anything you want. In the book, we lay some examples out. But say, for example, you have a really hard time getting hungry and you feel terrible. Good, maybe that's your stressor. And maybe you start with an eight-hour fast. You don't have to go into a five-day fast. right? Maybe you're fine with that. You don't have a problem with food. But man, you really struggle in the cold like my wife. Uh, were, were you at the EXPT we did in Mexico? No, you were at the Malibu. Malibu, Ma yeah. Okay. So my wife like, is terrified of cold. Terrified. And she's been wanting to go to an XPT event, right? She wanted to go out. I'm like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to go to this Mexico one, but you have to do the cold. And we practice at home, and she got, like, her toes in it and freaks out, you know. <laughs> Jumps out. When we get down there, and it's moments before getting in the cold, and everybody else is in there. And now, now keep in mind a little context here. Tasha is in her mid-30s, grew up in Southern California. Like, Gabby Reese is her idol. Like, she, this, is, this is who she grew up on. And she's like, oh, my God, Gabby's right here. First of all, I'm not super starstruck, but, like, super happy to meet someone I looked up to my whole life. And I'm, she's, she's in legitimate panic. She's in a panic attack. Her fingers are cuffed over her hands, her mouth like that. <laughs> like, she can't breathe, and she's like, she's going to do it. She goes through this whole charade. She gets in. She does the whole three minutes. Literally over her right shoulder is Gabby. Over her left shoulder is Larry Hamilton. They're talking you through it. She's not breathing hardly at all. She said later... Easily, one of the two most difficult things I've ever done in my life. For uh, some other people, for me, probably you, like, it's kind of comfortable. It's not that big a deal. So for me, that's not an adequate stress. I have to do other things that get me to that level. She did her three rounds. The second round was either by the time she did her third round, she's like, this wasn't actually that bad. She got sick as fuck the next day. Because <laughs> she was such a stress on her, it wiped her out. Yeah. But then she was able to translate that when she went back to work and her assistant was being shitty. She was like, oh, okay, this isn't that big a deal. When her mom's being shitty or whenever she's having a bad problem, she's able to go like, well, it wasn't as bad as the cold. It wasn't as bad as that. And so now we've gained that mental strength, which is a long answer again to your original question, which is how do we, how do we improve that thing? Some of us can just grit down and go like, I'm going to perform. And some of us, though, we can gain some of that by just exposing yourself to things that are uncomfortable. And if that means a cold shower once, maybe that's enough. Maybe that means you jumping in the ocean and doing steel training for two weeks. Okay, whatever it is for you, it's not good, bad, or better. There are things that I'll probably panic about just as much as she would uh, if she did in the ice, but, but I, have to, I have to do a different exposure. So I think the more that we can just look back on ourselves and go, okay, I'm really good here, 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 but I'm going to choose some discomfort over here. Well, there's going to be growth there. So, Yeah, that's massive, brother. Yeah. Well, I love, I love the quote that... Uh, Truth is one, pads are many. Yeah. Right. And I think the more we embody that with how we choose to eat food, yeah. how we choose to train, as long as we have a general interest and we 
really can stay focused on doing and trying new things and and you know you don't just i lifted i power lifted one day and it didn't work yeah, out for yeah, me. Yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah you got to stick with some stuff for a while and then change it up right yeah, yeah same thing goes if you're going low carb like don't tell me you tried a ketogenic diet for one week and failed like right. give it give it a shot if you're going to give it a shot if right. the goals make sense with what the outcome is and then there's there's one thing i'll add to that because most scientists are really against keto okay well I try to help them keep perspective. What's the problem with doing something that doesn't have scientific merit? Okay, that, that, don't even worry about that part of it, but just to say that it doesn't. What's the problem with doing something that doesn't have scientific merit simply for the physical challenge? What's the problem with that? Why not go, you know what? I, there's no scientific reason. There's no physiological benefit here, but I'm going to make a challenge. Uh, we're not going to have coffee for two weeks. Why? Not for the physiology, but just for the fact that like we're going to choose to do something difficult. And we don't like it, and then, boy, that's going to be... Like, that's a good thing. That's something we should be promoting, encouraging. So you decided to go no bread or no carbs or no potato or whatever, no rice for, for a month. Okay, that may or may not have a physiological health benefit that can all be discussed, but how about this thing? Of, how about for the fact of just saying, well, I set a goal that was really tough and I did it. That's great. We should celebrate that shit. Like that's a really good thing for most people. That doesn't always have to have a science or a physiology base behind something other than just saying, I set a goal and I did it. And it was hard. It was great. Oh, yeah. We gotta encourage ourselves to work a little, a little bit harder, and to challenge ourselves in new ways. Yeah, and let's celebrate when we, we, we take a task and it's difficult, and we accomplish it. Let's celebrate it, and let's just not bitch and whine about the fact that you didn't want to do it. That's what it really comes down to, right? People are are jealous that you did something really hard and they didn't want to do it. So they like, oh, there's no benefit there. The science is a joke. <laughs> yeah, my sister was like, <laughs> like, who cares? Why are you gonna starve yourself? Fasting is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And yeah, I was yeah. like, uh, you know, without. Trying to dive too deep into that, like, yeah. like, what's wrong with it? You know, yeah. like, I'm not gonna wither away here. You know, exactly. And, and there is quite a bit that that points towards this having a, a huge benefit to the body. Yeah, I mean, you could, we, I could pick apart the science, no problem. Uh, it's very limited humans and, and all this stuff, and I could really hammer that some of that science. But I still do it a lot of times for a bunch of other reasons. Like, um, I like to do it when I have important things to do, and I'm I'm under the weather, if you will. I don't feel good. And to me, it's a mental challenge of going, yeah, you don't want to do this. This is going to suck. You're hungry. And you're going to fucking perform anyways. And that, to me, drives that athlete in me, that competition, because I don't have that athletic portion in my life anymore. I don't do it all the time. But sometimes I like to wake up and everything else is gone from my life. All the other shit is gone. And I'm so dialed on that day because everything is important and I don't feel good. Actually, you can put yourself into flow that way. You can line yourself into flow by doing things like that. And like, what's the what's the problem with doing that occasionally? It feels great. And when you finish that day, you're like, fuck, dude. Yeah, that's real accomplishment. This is really good. Right? I feel great today. Hell yeah, brother. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, tell people where they can find you. Obviously, we'll throw a link up in the show notes to yep. Unplugged. It's a phenomenal book. Uh, we're going to be jumping on a Facebook Live, which will actually... Be gone uh, before this be, is Yeah, up, it'll, right? be, it'll be gone before we air this. Too but, bad, um, suckers. Where, where are you at on the social medias? Yeah, you can find that book. Uh, the podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, BodyNowledge.com, all that stuff. Um, my website and uh, my social, my social is, you know, Andy Galpin, DR, Dr. Andy Galpin on Instagram for the most part, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. But then my website is just AndyGalpin.com, and I just launched that. I don't even know if you've seen, have you seen it much of it? I popped into it. So what I'm Just basically repeat. doing is taking all of my university material, my nutrition lectures, all my classes on strength and conditioning, uh, programming, all that stuff, and I'm putting that all up on my website for free. 
There's no membership fees. There's not even a newsletter to even sign up for if you wanted to. Uh, there's a Patreon account attached to it if you want to contribute. But um, if you can't, like, don't not buy yourself coffee or not buy your wife a Valentine's Day gift or whatever because you <laughs> give me eight bucks or something. Uh, but really, like, my goal is to put my whole university curriculum up and just give it away. Um, all this stuff. So that if you want the details of program design stuff, that's going to be up there. If you want the physiology, if you want more metaphysical stuff or epistemology, everything I do is going to be up on that website. And it's going to be just totally free and open access to everybody in the world forever. There will never be a charge on that thing. So Awesome, brother. Cool, man. Hell yeah. Thanks for jumping on. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank you guys for listening to my man, Dr. Andy Galpin. It was a real treat having him in town. He stayed at my house for a few days here. We get to dive into breath work and a lot of cool stuff. He's actually helping me prepare for the Onnit 6 Invitational that's going to be right here in Austin at the Onnit Academy. We're going to be doing a little jiu-jitsu tournament, and that will precede EBI coming in, Eddie Bravo Invitational the day after. So I have a, a one submission-only eight-minute match, and uh, due to Dr. Andy Gulpin's wealth of knowledge and working with professional athletes and fighters, I couldn't help myself but actually try to pick his brain a bit and get dialed in on some, some great breathwork techniques and cardio. So... Hopefully that pans out and I don't let them down. Thanks for listening, guys. All right, guys, you've got questions. I've got answers. Every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Central Time, I'm going to be on Onnit's main page on Facebook doing a Facebook Live Q&A. The Facebook Live Q&A runs for 30 minutes. If you can't make it at 6 p.m. Central Time, all you have to do is write in your questions and I'll be sure to get those answered for you, either by writing it or talking about it on the Facebook Live, which you can check out at any point in time after the show airs. But be sure to tune in live if you can. We're going to get a lot of information rounded out, talking about the podcast, talking about different health topics, and I think you'll enjoy it. Hi, I'm Aubrey Marcus, CEO of Onnit.com. At Onnit, we've revolutionized the health and fitness industry with our unique and effective line of earth-grown supplements and foods aimed at helping you achieve total human optimization. Today, I want to tell you about a product that has truly changed my life for the better, New Mood. New Mood is an effective daily stress supplement made with earth-grown nutrients designed to help you relax and help your body maintain an optimal mood balance. Great for unwinding after a long day and helping to ease ordinary stress, New Mood works by combining the two raw building blocks of important neurotransmitters, L-tryptophan and 5-HTP, to help the body maintain a state of peaceful calm. Safe for daily use, New Mood is ideal when you are under stress, down in the dumps, or just need some refreshing sleep. Thousands of people worldwide are already enjoying the relaxing effects of New Mood on a daily basis. And right now, as a special offer, we're giving you the opportunity to try New Mood totally free. Just pay shipping and handling, and we'll send you out a free 30-count bottle of New Mood right away. Simple as that. We're only able to offer a limited amount of free bottles per day, so get your free bottle of New Mood now. Go to onnit.com slash trial, that's O-N-N-I-T dot com slash trial, to pick up your first bottle on us after shipping and handling.